What's going on, everybody? Hotep to the family. Ashe to all my people out there. Welcome to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network, where we give our point of view of controversial topics from experience, history, and knowledge as African Americans. I'm here with my co host. Uh, to the right of me is Shaquan Battle. To the right of him is Jerome Battle. Uh, we apologize for our absence for the last couple of weeks, but you know, some holidays fell. Um, some important things happened to where we uh, we had to take a vacation. Um, we But we're back, we're refreshed, and we're here to give out more black history and more information. And that holiday was not July 4th. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, it was not. It was not. Uh, we didn't pop off no flowers. No. We really did. We really did. But we had a, we had a great time on Juneteenth. We did. Uh, we, had, we had a get-together that's probably going to be annually for my family. Um, I've seen a lot of good things happening. Uh, Appomattox, uh, Roanoke had, a, had great events for Juneteenth. I uh, wish I had a round of applause. Great job. Uh, black people going out there and, and really representing um, our culture and our history. Um, so before we get started today on the, the topic, uh, I want to get y'all take on First, couple of current events. Um, since we've been gone, a couple of things have happened. Number one, uh, Derek Chauvin sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. Not the maximum, not what was recommended, uh, just a little bit more. Uh, start. You got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. Okay. You got to start somewhere. I mean, at the beginning, we wanted them to be charged. Um, there have been quite a, a few of these incidents where officers didn't even get charged. Yeah. And then there were some where officers got charged, but they didn't get found guilty. Mm -hmm. We had instances where they had grand juries, and the grand jury wouldn't indict. Mm -hmm. um, so we got we got the charge, uh, we got the arrest, we got the conviction, mm -hmm. and we got the sentence. We got we got all of it. The one thing is, is you can't ask for certain things and then complain mm -hmm. about how little you got after yeah. you asked for, right? right. We asked for. We got it. We got twenty two and a half. Um, the, the other, other thing, thing is, is justice or not, is, is not going to change the fact that we got to continue mm -hmm. to have these type of things happen on the other side. Mm -hmm. So we got to continue to have officers being held accountable. We got to continue to have prosecutors prosecute them. And we got to continue having juries that understand that there is diversity and there's inequality and injustice in the way that these officers are conducting their business. Absolutely. We have to have that. So it has to continue. So it's a start. Shakur? Firm believing small progress is still progress. Okay. Um, like I said, we you're not they're not gonna please everybody. You know, so uh I was content with, with what we got versus what we used to get. That's right. So I I'll take that. It's a start, and like Dad said, it's it's a start, but we can't stop. Absolutely. Um, do y'all think pending charges weighed into his decision? Because uh, there's talks about something else is coming for him. Yeah, from from previous case, a previous case, I, I think that could have had had some bearing. But you know, really and truly, I heard a couple of juries uh, jurors say that you watched the video. Yeah. You know, you watch the video, and I know there's been a lot of video about a lot a lot of the incidents where we think that. That, that should be it, and, and, and it's, it's not. But in this case, a lot of jurors felt like the video was compelling enough to say, yeah. You know, uh, case in point, one of the jurors said that 
the way that he had he was posturing when he had his knee on George Floyd's neck showed that George Floyd was not a threat. Right. So you don't put your hands on your hip when you have a threat. So that alone told them that he was not a threat. So there was no defense for that. So you have jurors that are jurors that are really looking at the evidence. Um and 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 it's not politics. Um which in most cases it usually is. In this case, it wasn't politics. They looked at the evidence. Um, I think another thing that helped, well, that hurt was actually his mother's testimony. His mother talked about how, um, talked about grief for her son, but she never once mentioned grief for, you know, the family of the deceased. Um, I think that hurt. Um, of course, Derek Chauvin asked to say anything, and he chose to, to uh, not talk about it, being that there are other cases coming up um, that possibly could have hurt him. But I think the judge did what he felt was fair and right. So um, I don't think the judge really pleased anybody. He went with the medium. So if he would have gave the maximum sentence, it would have been an outrage. If he would have gave the minimum sentence, it would have been an outrage. He went with the medium to where, okay, both sides can hate me, but you know justice was served in some form of way. Um, Again, the judge even said the conviction was the most important thing. Right. right. Yeah. So, so the, the conviction, conviction is what they really Right. Um, my only problem was, uh, y'all know, I, I know drug dealers that got 40, got double that time. Oh, absolutely. So um, again, absolutely. The, the system is still broken. Um, I know people who are doing twice that time for a drug that is no longer uh, illegal. illegal. Right. So uh, which leads into talking about illegal substances. So with weed, uh, Ms. Richardson, uh, y'all thoughts? I, my take, take is going to be a little, little bit different. And I know a lot of people are dislike what I'm saying. Um, I understand that, you know, a lot of people say, well, you don't, you don't smoke. So, you know, <laughs> we, we know where you stand. My, my problem is, one, I don't agree with the legalization of it because I think it's for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, people can talk about it doesn't have permanent effects on individuals that smoke weed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's say it doesn't. I could care less. At the end of the day, it's something that your kids are going to grow up and want to do. Mm-hmm. It's just like driving. It's just like smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. sex. Something that kids look forward to. Add another one to the list. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the same thing with alcohol with the prohibition. Um, but it's all about money. See, so when they legalized alcohol again, it wasn't because they thought it was okay. They it's money. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get the money that the bootleggers would get. Mm-hmm. So they regulated it so they could get the money. Weeds are no different. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they could care less about whether it frauds your brain or not, mm-hmm. or how it affects you on your job or in your personal life, um, whether it endangers people. Um, I remember in the 80s, they wanted to legalize weed. There was an Amtrak uh, train accident where the conductor said that he smoked weed right before the accident. That's one of the reasons why it wasn't legalized prior. Um, but, but it does have effects. effects. So, so what are you going to have is, just for those that don't know, uh, a, a DUI is driving under the influence, mm-hmm. which means you can get a DUI from smoking weed. It's going to go through the roof. One of the leading killers in the United States right now is alcohol. Right. Then you add another one to the mix. Yeah. You know, so with this, with this Olympic runner, I understand that she was going through some things mm-hmm. in her personal life. Um, a lot of pressure on her. And smoking weed is a way to relax. However, it is against the rules. Yeah. So you know what's ahead of you. She owned up goal. to that, though. She owned up to that and said she knew she knew uh, and, what the and, rules were. She still and I get what people choice. say that you know it's legal now. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's still against the rules. And just for those that don't know, 
Don't go down to your job this week tied up thinking that because it's legal, it's all good. Right. It's not. Right. So just keep that in mind. And she had to learn the hard way. And I hope other people learn from her mistake. Shaquan. Much like you said, episode one, the laws is old. Well, these rules are old. Um, You look at Michael Phelps a few years back. Drug problem. Still got to swim. Uh, my man that wowed out, uh, I forgot what his name was. He was a swimmer too. I forgot his name. Yeah, I know you're talking he about. Still got to swim. Mm-hmm. But now, was it Lock or something like that? Yeah, I don't yeah, think okay. that's what it was. Then you get you did you get this black girl with the long nails, the weave, the color weave. Yeah, you know she she's flamboyant. You know when when she's running, she's pointing at the clock, so she she's showing people up and. To me, it's almost like we have to find something to bring her down. Now, granted, look, she she admitted to her wrongdoing, um, but at the same time, let the girl run. Right. You know, uh, I'm sure it's a lot of people that probably tested positive for marijuana, but mm-hmm. because who she is and what she's done over the past few months, you know, I, I felt like they they kind of targeted. Absolutely. Uh, since y'all took two different avenues, and I agree with you both, um, there's, I don't think that's a right and wrong answer in, in that question I asked. Um, but I think both of y'all know where I stand. I've talked about this before when it comes to uh, Black influence. I'll pose the co- question to you, Shaquan. Why, why, do, why do people run in the Olympics or participate in the Olympics? What do you, what do you think is the number one reason? Well, the obvious is to get to get the gold medal. To get the gold medal, okay. And I think it's safe to say that um, running for your country, which whatever the way you deem that to be, right? Um, some you know take pride in it. Some just say you know you know I still want to represent, even though I don't agree with most things that goes on in America. So you know we you know raise our fists during uh, the gold medal ceremony. Um, we speak out. We know that. For a fact, all through history, that the most dominant athlete in the world is the black athlete. We agree. We know that the most influential person in the world is the black man and black woman, right? So my question again is, why do we need the Olympics? The same question I would ask, you should go deeper. Why do we need the NBA? Why do we need the NFL? Um, uh, we know what Negro League Baseball did and, and the, the things that it changed by creating it, it itself its own. But when you had, if, if all of the athletes that spoke up for this, um, for this black woman, if they really wanted to make change, they could if they really wanted to. Could you imagine if every black athlete from the United States said, we're not coming. If she don't get the run, we ain't coming. You know what Tokyo would say? We losing money. Because, for instance, we're not watching all of these events. We're going to look up Richardson. Mm-hmm. What time is she running? We're watching her. We're going to look up the USA basketball team. What time are they playing? We're there. We're going to look up the other female runners. We're going to look up the black swimmers. We're going to look up Simone Biles, the whole black gymnastics team. Now We're looking up all of them. And black people are not just doing that. The rest of the world is doing that. Ask some of these people from other countries, who is such and such that's running for Tokyo? Who is such and such that's running for, uh, what you call them? You're gonna, they're going to name American athletes, Jamaican athletes, 
Haitian athletes. You're going to be talking about mostly black athletes. Why do we need the Olympics? So my, if we really want to make real change, we didn't need tweets. We didn't need Facebook posts. We didn't need media outrage. It was simple saying, we're not coming. Because what is what is the benefit? When you look up the, the, the history of the Olympics, most of the time, you're going to now even find out who won the gold medal. Now, we talk about Wilma Rudolph and Jesse Owens. Of course, those are names that just blew us out the water. But when you look up the history of it, they're going to just say gold medal, United States of America. I'm not going to say who, who was, who came in second place during Jesse Owens' run. Most people don't know. So when you ask about why, what, what are we doing? Black people have to become unified to understand that we are the dominant culture, society, influencers, to say that we can start saying no to protect the interests of black people. And what Malcolm X said, there's going to come a time where a black man is going to think like a black man. And, we're, and when you go against that one black man, you're going to go against all the black people. And until we get that unity, they can still dib and dab on what we can and we can't do. They just came out with the, for the swimmers that they care were the black owned haircut. Does that, does it make you swim faster? They told Simone Biles that she can't do certain moves because she's too advanced. Wait a minute, what? I'm too good? I still think that at the end of the day, it is going to be incumbent upon black America to understand the rules aren't for you. Right. So we talked about this on the podcast previously on several of them is that we have to, we have to be better than our counterparts. You can't just be good for a black person. Yeah. You got to be better than the counterpart. That's just not in the performance. Mm -hmm. That's in the conduct. Mm -hmm. That's in the decision. So I, I get the fact that when you look at this, obviously, we look at the comparison of how others were treated in the past. Well, one, if you remember the rules, on for you, right? So you have to you have to know that. Mm -hmm. Two, the whole purpose in going to the Olympics is showcase your talent, right? We know when you play things or do things at a high level, mm -hmm. you want to do it showcasing on the biggest platform for these track, especially for track and field. This is it. This is it. This is it. This is it. Right. So this is something that most people prepare for their entire life. Right. Right. So obviously, to be able to go do it on the big stage is what you want. I remember when you played basketball and it was something the coach said and you didn't particularly care for the play that he called or whatever. And I told you, I said, your objective is to do what? Be on the floor. Right. To be, that coach tell you when you get the ball, I want you to do this. Yes, sir. When you get in the game, you get the ball, you do what you want. Right. But your objective is to be in the game. Her objective should have been to run. That's your objective. Whatever it takes. So yeah, okay. The rules don't apply to you. Got it. Mm -hmm. Then don't do anything wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. So I understand that people are raised, and then I think the girl that's replacing her is a white girl. So I, I, think, yeah, that's, I think that's what people look at. For sometimes everything is not black and white, it is color. Right. Okay? But the color starts with you. Mm -hmm. What did you do? What did you contribute to the situation? Because we understand that the rules aren't absolutely. We understand absolutely. that. She, she, she knew that. Right. So the responsibility is more on her than it is anybody right. else. Right. And she owned up to it. Yeah. So uh, I wish I had a round of applause for her. And that just makes me appreciate, shout out to her, this makes me appreciate Simone Bowles even more. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it just makes me appreciate her even more for what she's, especially from doing a a a competition that is not particularly for black people. Right. When, when we think about it, we don't think about it, we dominate. Right. But gymnastics is not something that's that right. we've dominated in the past, but it is now. And, and Gabby Douglas. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. But I, I shout out to Nike for 
you know, still backing. Absolutely. I mean, well, we know what Nike. We we know what Nike. But we prefer that other black athletes learn from this. Yeah. And not just athletes, blacks in general. Right. So if you know somebody on your job, they get out on a regular basis and still got their job and was never suspended, don't mean you can smoke weed and go to work. Right. It don't apply to you. Think about it. I mean, you look at Marion Jones. Um, you look at, you know, what, what she did. The, the rules wasn't for her. Um, you, it's better to go in and accept that and figure out a way to overcome it than to learn the hard way. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Again, hit the YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel under the Mighty Motivation Network. Um. We thank everybody for who's been rocking with us, subscribing to the channel, commenting, sharing. Uh, we appreciate you. Um, so today we're going to get into our topic. Today we will be talking about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, we want to get into what led up to it. We want to get into the impact that it had. And of course, we're going to talk about how it affects us today. Um, but again, y'all know what time it is. It's, it's the segment of uh, going through a chronology of history. And a lot of that, which we had already talked about before on this podcast, uh, you're going to hear a lot of repeated things. Um, but even if you hear repeated things and you tune into this every week, you should be a guru. And in this area, whatever people That's talk right. to you about what's going on, you should have that embedded in your mind. Uh, but what led to the Harlem Renaissance? You, I, we're going to start at... Um, the Great Migration. Um, again, the Great Migration after the Civil War and the Reconstruction period, uh, white pr white supremacy was began to become on the rise, especially in the late uh, 1870s, uh, when Jim Crow was placed in, into the law of the land. Also, you had Southern Black people who had to abide by what they called the Black Codes uh, that we talked about previously on this on this podcast. We talked about a uh, sharecropping system. So, uh, even in the last episode, we talked about the sharecropping system, how they were making little to no money sometimes um, working the old plantations. Um, and then you also had the epidemic in 1898 that caused massive crop damage uh, across the South, um, which led a lot of people to uh, what we call the Great Migration into uh, larger cities like we see Chicago, uh, like we see Detroit, um, St. Louis, like we see um, D.C., Maryland, uh, the D.C. area, uh, New York, um, and California, we, we, uh, Kansas City, those type of places. Uh, but Southern people, uh, Black people were also um, moved because the movie Birth of a Nation that you talked about on this podcast before came out, and the numbers for the KKK went went very high. And also we saw uh, the number of lynchings that were happening in the South. So a lot of black people were trying to get away from uh, that Southern fear and, and move North. And also it was better opportunity in the North at the time. Uh, you can make three times more by working in the factory, uh, especially with the World War One uh, about to start. Um, people were looking for uh, workers um, in the factory. So the Great Migration, uh, of course, and you have people moving into New York City, as we talked about. Um, but when you look at the history of Harlem, uh, history of Harlem was mainly uh, an all-white neighborhood. Um, yeah, 1910. Yeah, it was predominantly white. Uh, but one of the things that ended up happening was the um, real estate bubble burst in 1904, 1905, where a lot of 
uh, white um, owners, property owners, were had vacancies because a lot of people were waiting on the subway to be finished in Harlem so they could begin to move into uh, certain places in New York at a, at a rapid pace. But when the the subway was taking too long, the uh, they were losing money. So they ended up uh, starting to rent out and selling some property to black people. And of course, when one black person move in, a lot of white people move out. They didn't want to live with black people at the time. It was, they did pass the civil rights bill that we talked about, the housing bill that um, made it illegal to um, discriminate against black people for housing. But we know that there were codes put in place to where people were were not supposed to sell to black people uh, or rent out to black people, especially in predominantly white neighborhoods. But Harlem was losing so much money that it began to to do that. And a lot of elite black people moved into uh, into these areas because they could afford to pay the rent and, and all this other stuff. Um, a lot of churches ended up buying a lot of uh, a lot of property and moving black people out of Hell's Kitchen um, into in, in Harlem. And uh, black people also, um, they had their own uh, realtor company called Afro-American Realty Company in 1904, in which they went in and, and bought a lot of property and moved black people in to where we got, uh, where Harlem became um, a predominantly black uh, location. Yeah, by, by 1950, 97% black. Absolutely. So, um, so over 40 years, a little more than 40 years, it went from being predominantly white to predominantly black. Mm -hmm. So we had the, the Great Migration and... Then we have the flow of black people moving into the areas that now we call uh, Harlem. Um, and that's what uh, started what we call the, the, the Harlem Renaissance. But what ended up happening was, um, so people asked, what was the Harlem Renaissance in, in particular? Did you guys have any comments on yeah, before, 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 before they even yeah. turned it that, it was called, called the New, New, Negro, Negro, Movement. New Negro Movement. Yep. And uh, obviously, um, when we talk about the migration, Yes, for better work opportunities, but at the same time, racism in the South was systematic, was very institutionalized. So in order to escape it, you couldn't just live in your own community and be to yourself. You had to leave that state. Mm -hmm. It was uh, racism was very strong in the South um, in, in the late, even after, just so people will understand, even after the Civil War, Racism still existed. So the war didn't end racism. It supposedly ended slavery. Right. Um, so you had this migration, the Great Migration, where you had you know some. They stood to tune of 1.6 million blacks moving to the north and to the Midwest, um, all at one time. Um, so this was going on, and Harlem comes to mind for the same reason that you just talked about. Something we talked about on earlier podcasts. Uh, Malcolm X used to say this all the time. You can blame white America for traffic jams because what happened is you wanted to segregate us. You wanted to have us living in one area, but you wanted to employ us in another area. How are we going to get to work? Yeah. So you created this traffic jam, and then you had to come up with a solution, which is where you got public transportation from. So, of course, they were building the subway for that reason uh, in New York City. So um, a lot of things took place and form what you currently have today when you look at these, what we call metropolitan mm -hmm. cities. So. It was in between the, uh, 1910 and 1920, the black population of the northern grew. For New York, it was 66%. Chicago was 148%. Philadelphia was 500%. And Detroit was 611 
And if you look at like these places now, you know, and you you try to figure out why they predominantly black, you know, doing this research, I, I can never figure out why, you know, people from New York be like, yeah, I got family down south. Mm, yeah, this this yeah. all made sense. Right. This this brought it home for me. Right, because everybody essentially came from yeah. those southern plantations a lot and ended up moving. Which you can still, if you listen to a lot of uh, city people talk, they still have that country genre sometimes that like, okay, we know you got family from the south. Nas did a uh, episode of um, Finding His Roots and he talked about how his mother's cooking. Some things his mother would say, you could tell that she wasn't from New York. You could tell that she was from the south. Um, uh, but a lot of people ask, what was the Harlem Renaissance? Um, oh, one more thing before okay. we get into that. Um, and I want y'all to expand more on it, too. Uh, the Lost Cause Act, it claimed that slaves was happy, that they was happy and content with working on plantations, and it was good for everybody that way. This led to some Southerners to believe that Blacks were ungrateful. <laughs> <laughs> now, I never, I never heard or knew about the Lost Cause Act until... I started Googling this. That's, That's what, what happens when white America speaks for black America. <laughs> Sounds like Uncle Ruckus from yeah. the old docs to me. That's, That's what happened is, yeah. you know, they, they spoke on behalf of the slaves. It's kind of like what we see today when the news speaks for the black community. Mm -hmm. But the news reporter and the news network doesn't represent the black community. Right. Same thing. Yeah, when you look at the South anyway, this is <laughs> the South like to think that they had a way of dealing with blacks. They they thought that they understood blacks and that this is best for you. This is what was best for black people. So um again, nothing's changed. Yeah. Nothing's changed. And they answer your question. Now it's just called the media. Yeah. Basically an African American cultural, social, and autistic movement. Um because as you said earlier, we are the most artistic and gifted people in the world. Right. And there's no question about that. And the Harlem Renaissance was an opportunity since you're bringing, as we talked about before the podcast, you bring this melting pot. You have this melting pot of different cultures of black people coming together. Right. See, people believe that when you, we all came from Africa, we all spoke the same language, we all from the same tribe, we all lived in it. None of that's true. So we all came here and there were different tribes, different cultures, different traditions. And you take all these people out of slavery and you put them all in, in the North and in the Midwest and they all come together and you have all these people wearing different clothing, drawing different pictures, painting different pictures, singing different songs, playing different music. And you put them all there together and they said, you know what, we need to bring this together. So, so we, we can start, start documenting all this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's where you get the Hall of Winners on. Um, and uh, I believe the spark came from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the book, from the book, The Souls of Black Folk. I, that's right. I think that's it right there. It is? Yeah, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, um, which came in 1903. And he says, uh, like you just talked about, he says, diverse cultures should develop side by side in harmony rather than be melted together or ranked on the scale of evolving civilization. So when it ended up happening was like we like like Pops just talked about was you had these different black people uh, come together from different cultures, different tr traditions, different rituals um, that basically form under one umbrella um, and created what we consider black culture as one. Um, 
So you had uh, African-Americans from, from different places, you know, whether you were from Kansas City, whether you were from Mississippi, whether you were from New Orleans, Jamaica, That's right. um, London. Everybody wanted to come into Harlem because they wanted to make Harlem the black Mecca. Um, of course, Atlanta was competing at the time, but they wanted to make Harlem the black Mecca altogether for, uh, for, for African-Americans. And just the, the history of Harlem, uh, before the colonizers, the area that was um, Harlem, which it was spelled with two A's originally, mm-hmm. uh, was inhabited by the Manhattans, yeah. which is where you get the word Manhattan from, which is a Native tribe um, who belonged to other Native Americans, and I can't pronounce it, so I'm just going to spell it, it's L-E-N-A-P-E. Mm-hmm. So before the colonizers, guess who was there? For sure, <laughs> the Native Americans. For sure, of course. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit on another episode when we get into terms like Black Wall Street and. and those I, I didn't know that Harlem was predominantly occupied by Jewish and Italian Americans in the nineteenth century. Well, yeah, and that just goes back to what we talked about. You know, at one point it was just by um, the because when you look at blacks, blacks. Irish, Italians, Jews are considered the lowest of any other uh, white people, of, of, of other Europeans. So when Italians moved in, white people said, we don't want to live with them. So the Jews move in, the Jews, the Italians said, we don't want to live with them. And then the Irish moved in, Oh, we don't want to live with them because if, if you listen, they, they would call Irish the, the white niggas. Yeah. They would call the Irish the white niggas. We don't want to live with them. Same thing applies to the Asians. And then when the blacks moved in, the Irish, we ain't staying here. But they, but when you when you look at New York specifically, I know Dad could talk, could contest to this, is they still own the properties. So a lot of Jews still own property in New York. A lot of Italians. They, the they kept the property. They kept the businesses. And black people just lived that form of segregation that I keep talking about. But absolutely. Uh, but yeah, of course, that's what the Harlem Renaissance was. It was a uh, African-American culture manifesting in literature, music, stage performance, and art. Um, so you had black painters, uh, which they began to like paint African mask from uh, from different tribes of like the Congo, the Benin, the, the Senegal. Um, they began to really find their African heritage and roots uh, again. Because again, when you talk about Renaissance, the word Renaissance means a rebirth. Because we lost that. We lost it. But we've been told all throughout history that black people don't have any history or culture. But you can't get the word Renaissance without having some type of heritage and culture to start with. So, so let me ask you this. Um, how was it for you when you first found, you know, uh, all of this, you know, um, getting in touch with your ancestors mm-hmm. and, and things like that? I didn't want to believe it because we, we are, our minds are trained to think one way, whether it's religion, whether it's traditions and heritage, uh, of, of what you were raised in in the household, you know how hard it is to 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 tell people, not white people, tell black people, you know where you come from, because you've been trained your whole life to think to believe a certain way, um, to to think a certain way, to to act a certain way, um, because black people still have this thing where we don't want to we don't want to cause no trouble. 
<laughs> you know, you, you think about it. Martin Luther King, before he died, he was the most hated man in the world. Not just about white people. Black people hated him. Because they didn't want to cause no trouble. So it, it, it blew my mind. And I had to say, okay, everything that I've learned, I have to question. And of course, people make fun of the woke community. They say, well, everybody woke and y'all, y'all question everything. We have to. We have to because of what we was taught and who taught us. So we are going back and we are opening up our eyes and ears to everything. We're keeping an open mind about anything. You know what I'm saying? You know, a hundred years from now, people just thought the Egyptians was just all white. A hundred years ago, people thought that black people were just slaves. When they came from Africa, they they, they didn't speak a language. They they couldn't read. They couldn't write. They they were just in, they were just inferior people. But now the amount of people just a couple years ago that celebrated the Fourth of July that no longer celebrates the Fourth of exactly. July. You know? Exactly, me included. Yeah. Uh, what, so, about, what about for you, Dad? Like growing up in DC, you know. Um, actually, that's what led me to research. The Harlem Renaissance. Actually, what happened is I went to New York to visit. Um, I was probably 13 or 14 at the time. First time? First time. And um, when I went to New York, you guys know I love the draw. So seeing graffiti for the first time, and I started doing research on graffiti, which led me to Harlem and led me to Harlem Renaissance. So of course, we had encyclopedias, so for those that you know, want to know how I found out. So when I got back to D.C., I started doing more research, and there was a, you guys hear us talk about Kelly Walker all the time, my next-door neighbor. We had an older brother named Tony Walker, and Tony was very, very educated in a lot of things. And talking to Tony, you know, I found out about the Washington, D.C. Renaissance that was, you know, kind of came down from Harlem mm-hmm. with some of the same major characters. And from that, you end up with what we have today, which is go-go music. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, for me, it was interesting because I was into those kind of things. And of course, growing up in D.C., go-go music was our favorite music. And you always want to know where did that come from? Well, without the Renaissance, you don't get that. You know, so that was huge for me um, growing up as a kid. So when you came up with this topic, I was like, you know, I lived this, right? you know, so I'm one of the rare people that was able to live an understanding of the Harlem Renaissance, the Washington, D.C. Renaissance. And if you ever have an opportunity to go to Chicago or Detroit, you'll see that same influence. And I'll also say briefly, um, because this is our podcast, I can say whatever. Um, Understanding. Um when we say that we are our ancestors um, and African belief system, we believe that we have an encoded encyclopedia within us that we can activate if we understand our true knowledge, if it comes across. For instance, if somebody was to, to show you something that you did 30 years ago and you would say, hey, yeah, I remember that. Of course you will remember you did it. Right. But you just had to be reminded that you did it. But if you came across a word, you came across a song, you come across a a uh, a quote from a movie, you'll remember it because you watched it at one time. The same comes through uh, the, the transition from my ancestors. They encoded this in us. So when you learn about stuff like African culture, 
you gravitate towards it, even though you may not know it, you know it. So this is what we believe in African culture is that it's in us. We just have to find that 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 nature of ourselves that once existed long ago. And when we find it, we gravitate toward it because it's a part of us. Um, so it's not new information. It's just new to our own thinking in today's society that we that we that we learn about it. This is this is just coming from um, African concept. Um, but not only did they have black painters, uh, black books was the most important thing during this time. Well, one of the most important because you have black characters with black perspectives. Um, you they talked about racism, they talk about prejudice behind stories, folklore stories. Uh, the main thing that they did was with fictional stories and poetry was they rejected the traditional American standards of writing utilizing their own style of writing to signify their own cultural identity. So the people that we're going to talk about did this in, in, in great um, ordeal. So they didn't, when you think of Shakespeare, they didn't talk like Shakespeare. They could. And if they did, they translated it into where Black people will understand what they were talking about. So when you think about writers today, and me, me included because I'm an author now, these people paved the way for me to write the way I talk. Because if you go to an English class, they tell you this is not the right way. This is not the correct grammar. This is not the way you start a sentence. This is not the way you end a sentence. This is not the way you start a paragraph. This is not the way you use quotations. When you talk about the African-American specifically, those rules don't apply to us. So they created their own rules to, to become great writers within themselves without falling to the normalcy of what other writers were doing at the time. Uh, people like Zora Hurston, who I know Dad's going to get into later, she was called being too black. Right. Her writers were too black. Uh, uh, but many also promoted racial pride and embracing uh, their African sentiment. Um, many works address feelings of alienation experienced by minorities in American society. And they also uplifted black people. Uh, of course, on the last episode, we talked about black music, uh, jazz and the blues, race records. All of those things were monumental for the uh, the Harlem Renaissance, especially when you talk about Broadway musicals, because it led writers like the ones that were writing poetry and musicians to come together and do Broadway shows um, that led to you know the the stardom of people like Josephine Baker. Most people even contribute the start of the Harlem Renaissance to a actual play called Shuffle Along. Um, Shuffle Along was one of the first Black Broadway musicals. Um, they had a sophisticated African-American love story um, that was pretty monumental for a lot of writers, uh, actors, dancers, singers. Um, and we own black clubs. Of course, of course, you haven't been to that Cotton Club many a time. But Cotton Club, uh, for a long time, was uh, they didn't allow white black people to be in there unless you were entertaining. So black people own, own their own clubs like Lennox Club, the Plantation Inn, the Savoy Ballroom, and then you have places like the Apollo Theater that began to give Black people the opportunity to showcase their amateur talent. Um, but yeah, uh, so anything else on that? While we, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Again, subscribe on the YouTube channel, Mighty Motivation Network. Thank y'all for all y'all support and love. And we're going to dive right back so, a lot of people may ask, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of the Hall of Renaissance? Why did we need it? What was the purpose of it? What did it achieve? We're going to get into that real quick. Uh, 
uh, oh, when I when I think about the Harlem Renaissance, and this is from uh, my perspective, when I feel like what the purpose is, um, we hear throughout history, especially when you read about history, and they talk about um, whether you talk about African culture, whether you talk about Kemetic or Egyptian culture, Asian culture, whatever the case may be, in order to be considered in an advanced civilization, you have to have culture. If you didn't have culture, they didn't consider you a civilization at all. So African Americans when were stripped of their culture once the minute they stepped on the plantation to where they had to create their own, which we did through music, dance, and expressions that we talked about on the previous episode. But W.E.B. Du Bois was always looking for ways for African Americans to be respected, not just by white America, but to respect themselves, to respect each other. Again, like Pop said, we, we spoke different languages because we came from different places. Um, we, even when you talk about uh, America itself, uh, when you think of people like um, Sojourner True, you know, mm-hmm. she, she, she lived on a Dutch plantation. Right. <laughs> you know, a lot of people spoke different languages. Uh, when you think of the Haitians, spoke French and, and Creole, Creole French. French. Yeah, right. So when you think of, uh, of the different languages and different cultures that we came from, uh, we had to have respect for each other, which we still do today. Uh, right. We still do today. Uh, but the number one way W.B. Du Bois wanted Black people to be respected, one thing we needed to do was, number, his number one thing was education. And we talked about that on the previous episode, too. The second thing was that we talked about on the previous episode, joining the war. He, he thought if we go fight for our country, we'll gain the respect, not only for ourselves, but for from white America. And the third thing he thought that we should do to gain respect was have our own art and our own literature so we can be a civilized culture um, in America. And what it was going to do was raise the level of literacy based on our culture. It was going to uplift our race. It was going to open up social economic opportunities and develop racial pride. Be Be prideful in who you are. And that's what that's what they essentially did through their writings, through their paintings, through their through their Broadway shows. Remember, we talked about this on the previous episode. A lot of the Broadway shows that black people were doing, they were characters of minstrel shows, making fun of themselves, making fun of their their heritage and culture. This changed everything. And we think of writers before the, the Renaissance. There were people who just escaped slavery and told their story most of the time. That's right. You know what I'm saying? So this was a different type of writing, different type of music, different type of entertainment, different type of art that we could be proud of. Um, and what grew out of it was a couple of organizations that we talked about. Uh, the NAACP formed in 1909 and became active in Harlem in 1910. And another person who we're going to do a whole episode on one day is Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which started campaigning, um, especially in Harlem, about 1916. Um, so when you just think about what it influenced, that's you're, you're talking about that's right. It's, 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 it's all of those things, and then you can add to that one. You can never do anything in America without generating one thing: revenue. Absolutely. So we got to be about money. So of course, this generated money. Mm-hmm. But to add to that, when you start when you start educating people, because we talked about education being the equal. Um, but you also have to build that culture, that background of giving people an understanding of where you came from and your value. Talked about that too. 
showing people's value. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you get that one big word, hope. Hope that you can become more than what they said you were and that they will accept you for that. So you have that hope. Once you have hope, because you have to have unity, all that, you get that unity, and then you develop that concept of hope. You can achieve a lot. Right. And, and the Harlem Renaissance gave us all those things. And then it spread from there. Not just in America, but across the world. You know, so obviously uh, the African culture is something that people wanted. And what I mean by that, they were willing to spend money for it. They were willing to buy it. Not just black, but whites as well. Europeans were willing to buy that. That, that culture, a part of that culture. Right, and you you said it. Uh, you used the word unity, and one thing that that got started was there was supposed to be a uh, kind of a award show of twenty five people, and they were going to uh, be celebrating a a, a black um, artist, and I think it was uh, Locke and W. Du Bois said, "If you're going to celebrate him, we should celebrate everybody." That's right. And what they ended up doing was. They came together and they came up with their own column or magazine and they put all of the poems in there. They put the images in there and said, this is all of us. And it hit. Absolutely. And people wanted more. And then also what ended up happening was a lot of these black artists couldn't get their work into white museums or or stores. What's that called? Fires? Fires was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and what it ended up happening was uh, they would have contests to where black people could compete and win a cash prize if their if their art was chosen. And when they began to put these artworks into the thing, white people started buying them. They started liking them, so they started putting more in there. They started coming up with finding ways to put black artists in, in into these places. Um, so that that was huge. I could uh, add a link to you. That's We younger, I quote, we younger Negro artists who create now to intend express our individual dark skinned selves without fear or shame. That sounds like this podcast. If white people are pleased, we're glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. Yep. The Tom Tom cries and the Tom Tom laughs. Yep. If colored people are pleased, we're glad. If they are not, their displeasure doesn't matter either. We will build our temples for tomorrow, strong as we know how, and we will stand on top of the mountain, free within us. Strong racial pride. You know, when I was a kid, I used to always think that, it's just in my opinion, that Langston Hughes was the first civil rights leader. (laughs) In my opinion. He he was, to me, he was the first civil rights leader. And the reason I say that is not just some of the things that he said, it's the perspective. Because probably him, I don't know if you guys ever heard of County Cullen. He was a popular black writer during that same period. But what he did is he wrote to appease European and white Americans, right? A lot of his stuff, most black people couldn't fathom, right? Langston Hughes wrote in a manner, very educated. Let's, let's, let's make that point. Very educated guy. But he wrote in a manner that, like you, talk, like you talked about, 
in a manner that black people can understand it. Yeah. So he didn't use proper grammar all the time. Now he could. There are some writings where he did, but he wrote in a manner that anybody could read it and understand, mainly black people. And he loved black people to the point that for those that don't know, I also like to do what we call slam, which is poetic, it's just poetry recital. Langston Hughes was the one who created that. It was called jazz poetry. Yeah, because he loved jazz. Exactly. So he mixed jazz with poetry, and you got what we jazz. call today slam. Say, baby. You know, <laughs> absolutely. So uh, Negro was involved yeah. is what he used to say. Oh, absolutely. I will always do that. Say, baby. You might not hear it, but you will, I will always do that. That's, that's like drawing to me. So I will always draw, and I will always do Oh yeah, absolutely. So it, it achieved a lot. Again, um, it gave us it gave us pride and it gave us control over the black experience. Like we talked about a few minutes ago, that we wanted to be able to give our perspective from our own point of view without other people telling us what we like and what we don't like. That's what right. we should be doing. Um, it also removed those ner- those negative stereotypes that we've seen from the menstrual shows, that we've seen from things like Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, right. those type of things uh, where we really, you know, laughed about our own culture and heritage, cartoons that we talked about on the Black Visual episode. Um, but it, it, laid, it laid the groundwork for consciousness. When we talk about brothers being conscious now, it, it, it's because of them, because they thought intellectually, they wrote intellectually. And when you do that, like Dad always talk about, read books. When you read books, you will become intellectual. So regardless of what the blues music was saying, regardless of what jazz music was saying, the writers were writing in books and people were reading. Black people were interested in learning and becoming um, becoming smarter due to these, these people putting it down on paper, putting it on paper. Because when you listen to music, you're, you're, a lot of times you're just going off the rhythm. But when you listen, when you read books, you're going off the words. Um, you're going off the perspective. Um, but the Harlem Renaissance, uh, it attributed to so much uh, for a nation as whole. Uh, we also talked about uh, The Crisis was another one of those magazines. The Opportunity was another one. Then you talked about Fire as well. But it contributed to other renaissances. When you just think about the Harlem Renaissance, there were other renaissances happening simultaneously while this was going on. The one I'm being Chicago. Uh, black Renaissance that happened in the 1930s and up through the 1950s, where you know people uh, like Louis Armstrong, uh, Lorraine uh, Hansberry, um, Margaret Walker, Richard Wright came out of, um, and then like Dad talked about earlier, you had the the DC Renaissance happen simultaneously. You had the Detroit Renaissance. You had Black Art Movement that came years later, but you had a lot of things that it contributed to that led to uh, what we consider now being having that racial pride. Even when you look at Atlanta, Georgia, how Atlanta is that mecca that we talk about. But the racial pride of, of what, it, what it contributed came from what we consider to be the Hall of Renaissance of the first black mecca that we like to call it. Uh, did you have anything else on the D.C. Renaissance that you want to talk about while we're here? Um, no, we're, we're going to talk about Langston Hughes when we start getting into Okay. But Langston Hughes was Huge in the DC we're, we're about to get into some people right after this break. If y'all had anything on what it achieved or what, it, what its purpose was before we move it. So that through my research, um, 
Well, some of the major high schools in Washington, D.C. was named after people that were part of the like Dunbar High School. You guys hear a lot. We're Georgetown fans, so a lot of Maryland fans. A lot of the players that go that, that go to Maryland and Georgetown came from Dunbar High, which was named after a guy that was you know really prevalent in Washington. Uh, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Again, subscribe on the YouTube channel, uh, Mighty Motivation Network. Comment, share, uh, send a link to somebody that you know that can benefit from this information. Um, so we're going to move right along. We're going to talk about some important people, important things of the Hall of Renaissance that you can guys can go up and look, for, look up for yourselves, which we hope you do if you listen to this episode. We hope you go back. And research the things that we talked about. Don't just take our word for it. Um, I'll let one of y'all start um, with people you want to talk about or things you want to talk about from the Hall of Renaissance. Um, Jean Thomas Kane, 1923. A unique fusion of fiction, poetry, and drama rooted in Thomas' experience as a teacher in Georgia. Tuma's masterpiece was followed within a few years by a cluster of novels exploring Black experiences and dilemmas of Black identity in a variety of modes from different angles. Okay. Okay. I'm going to stay with Langston Hughes. (laughs) This dude is phenomenal. Um, Although he's best known for his poetry, he's often marked with what they call lyrical patterns. Um, he also wrote novels like 1929, Not Without Laughter, um, short stories like his 1934 collection, The Ways of White Folks. Um, this guy had a way with words. Um, in fact, I would like for people, we often ask you guys to, to do your due diligence, but I'm going to ask you guys to do me a huge favor. And it's only because over the last few years, especially when Donald Trump was running for president, you heard that uh, Let America Be Great Again and all that good stuff. Where Langston Hughes had a poem in 1936 called Let America Be America Again. And I like everybody to Google that and, and read that poem. It, it, it's something that when you read it, you can go, this was 1936, not yesterday? I think it's going to surprise some people the way that Black America thought about America back in 1936. Um, because, because we, we always, always like to talk about, about how do these things apply to us today? today. I want people, and I'll, I'll repeat it, Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes, 1936. Just read it, and, and you'll see how things from 1936 applies to you today. Langston Hughes, one of the, the greatest Black poets, writers, um, civil rights leaders of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with a guy by the name of James Johnson, uh, who was actually a principal of a black high school in Florida. Um, he was a lawyer, a songwriter. He actually co-wrote the song, Lift Up Every Voice and Sing, which is we call the Black National Anthem. Um, but he ended up moving to Harlem and him and his brother wrote over 200 songs for Broadway musicals. Um, he actually became one of the head of the NAACP. Uh, especially in the New York area, where he actually was one of the ones that organized the the silent march in New York um, against racial violence. Um, I think we talked about that on this podcast before, the, the silent march. But his, his autobiography of an ex-colored man was a big contribution to the Hall of Renaissance, 
where he says things like, it's no disgrace to be black, but often very inconvenient, <laughs> which is 100% true. You know, when you think about you want to have that racial pride, but when you think about living in white America, it's sometimes inconvenient to do so. Um, but he also said another thing that I like this, but, but if the Negro is so distinctly inferior, it is a strange thing to me that it takes such tremendous effort on the part of white man to make him realize it and try to keep him in the same place into which inferior men naturally fall. And and that, that comes to show a lot because if a, if a race or a person was inferior, you don't have to tell them. They're going to prove it to you. So what we've seen from white America is they constantly try to ridicule black people and, and, and keep them in a position lower than them. When if that was true, you wouldn't have to stop on, on them so long. If they if they weren't strong enough to pick themselves up, then your boot wouldn't be necessary to keep stomping on them. Right. Uh, George, I, I can't pronounce that, so I'm just gonna spell it. It's S C H U Y L E R. Um, published Black No More. A satire about Americans' obsession with race. Mm -hmm. The book was controversial in part because he mocked African American leaders. Uh, it contained parodies of Marcus Garvey, NAACP, um, and the Tuskegee leaders. The reason I chose that one is because um, you look at comedy now and what it's done for black writers. Uh, you know, parodies. You know, Dave Chappelle, all of those, and you you look at what they took it. Um, and made it, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that's that's the reason why I chose that one because you look at what he started and then you look at what parodies are now. Absolutely, that's good stuff. Um, I'm gonna go Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, I just mentioned him. Uh, they named a high school after him in Washington D.C. Um, basically because of his achievements and through and, and let's sure. Through the uh, Harlem, uh, Washington D.C. Renaissance, which was a spinoff from the Harlem Renaissance, um, and, and the great thing about him is, well, few of them. The great things about him was he 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 learned to read by listening to slave master read poetry, and at at age six he started writing poetry. He was the only black child at a at a at Central High School, and was a member of the debating society and editor of the school paper, and president of the school's literary society. He was the only black in the school. So, and again, we're talking 1872, you know, so this was going on, for those that put it in perspective, if you do your timeline, do your chronological, uh, we weren't quite out of that, that slave mentality yet after the Civil War. You still had slavery still happening um, in certain areas. And you had this guy that was doing great things in a predominantly white school. Uh, he moved to Washington, D.C. in 1898 and uh, lived on U Street. And U Street, at some point, was called the Black Broadway. A lot of people don't know that. But U Street is where the D.C. Renaissance took place. And that's where all the museums are you want to go learn about the D.C. Renaissance, go to U Street, and you will learn everything you need to know about the D.C. Renaissance. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to go Paul Lawrence Dumbo. I love it. I love it. That's great information.
and I didn't know know about the DC Renaissance until I started digging into the Harlem Renaissance. So, uh, great information. Uh, I'm going with Rudolf Fischer. Um, he was actually the first Harlem Renaissance writer to, to enter mainstream press. Um, he was published in the Atlantic Monthly for a short story. But he wrote a novel called The, the Walls of Jericho um, in 1928. And it basically was a satire of class and color prejudice uh, about, about things that were going on in Harlem. But what it did was it combined lower class Harlem and upper class black Harlem together in, in one novel. Um, and it talked about how African-American men can get ahead in the urban North if they join together to overcome mutual distrust bred by centuries of oppression. Uh, something that we're still fighting today. Um, but he said, one of the quotes from this book, he says that that's what we Negroes need, a business class, an economic backbone. What kind of a social structure can anybody have with nothing but the extremes Boo blacks on one end and doctors on the other. Nothing in between. No substance. Everybody wants to quit waiting tables and start writing prescriptions right away. <laughs> and, and I love that because we still deal with that problem today. It's just in the form of, of quick money. That's right. Drug dealer. We, we, we like to go by the quote rags to riches. You know, everybody want to go from being completely broke to being completely rich without putting in the in-between work. This is one reason why we don't see a lot of successful black businesses, people who stick with it because they they don't want to go through that in between. They want they either want to they want to go from rags to riches very quickly. And what he was saying in 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 this in this quote was we need a, a in between. We need process. We need progress in order to achieve the riches that we want. But we have to be able to come together. Uh, which is the people that leave black people that have money teach the people who don't have money. And we can come up with that in between a middle class. We can have that middle class mm -hmm. because those are the people who are essential as well. That's right. They, they want it quick or they don't want it at all. Okay. Um, Walter White, the novel was called The Fire in the Flint um, in 1924. Uh, it was a story of Dr. Kenneth Harper, an African-American doctor and World War I veteran who moves back into his hometown in Georgia to open a clinic and practice medicine after graduating medical school. Uh, Dr. Harper, who is initially unwilling to be involved in racial tension in the town, eventually fights against the KKK after he's subjected to hostile racism from the white residents. I picked that one because um, much I, like today, you have some people that, that say, oh, that's black. I've never experienced racism. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, whether they know it or not, they have experienced uh, racism. So uh, I picked that one because it's a lot of times those people that haven't um, experienced racism, they sit on the fence. Mm -hmm. or, or they won't admit it. Right. <laughs> they won't admit yeah. it. So I, I picked that one because um, it kind of ties into to today. Um, you know, early on, you said that one of the the aspects of the Harlem Renaissance was about education. Mm -hmm. um, we always talk about that being the equalizer. Um, I'm going to go with um, Alan Leroy Locke. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the reason I'm selecting him is because it, it 
coincides with what you're saying about the education aspect, which was the first thing you mentioned about the Harlem Renaissance was education. Yes. Educating our people about our people. Mm -hmm. um, Alan Locke was an American writer, philosopher, educator, patron of the arts. Just that alone, you know, this guy was smart, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in 1907, uh, he was distinguished and known as the first African-American world scholar. Um, Locke became known as the philosophical architect. I mean, that alone, see, this guy was smart, right? Um, he was even acknowledged as the dean of the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, absolutely. Letting you know that this was an educational, a very educational movement. Uh, also, Reverend Martin Luther King in 1968 proclaimed we're going to let our children know the only philosophers that lived with no plateau or Aristotle, but W.E.B. Du Bois and Alan Locke yeah. came through the universe. Yeah. Um, here's the kick. He was his writings were so in, at an intellectual level beyond most people. He actually would suggest that readers would read other people's writings yes, first. Yeah. Before you read, you're not going to understand my writings first. Yeah. Read some of these other writings and then come back and read mine. He, his was just at a high level, was too much for most people to really understand. Very well-educated guy, um, just too sophisticated for most. Um, one of the people that he would say you should really read was Zora Hersa. So that's kind of, he kind of put her on the map, like put her out in the forefront and said, hey, you really want to read some good writing? Read her stuff. And then after you read her stuff, come back and read mine. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Nella Larson, who wrote uh, Quicksand. Um, she was really big in not just capturing um, the prejudice and, and, and racial equality for Black people, but she also spoke about the the uh, problems that black women faced. Um, it's one of her quotes from Quicksand says, somewhere within her, in a deep recess, crouched discontent, she began to lose confidence in the fullness of her life. The glow began to fade from her conception of it. As the days multiplied her need of something, something vaguely familiar, but which she could not put a name to and hold for a definite examination. Become almost intolerable, she went through moments of overwhelming anguish. She felt shut in, trapped. And we talked about on this podcast the importance of, of Black women on the episode, how a lot of Black women felt alienated or neglected. And we, we know that they're most the most neglected people um, in the world. And I believe her words brought... Um, brought attention to, to black women and, and helped them through a lot of cases, what we would call mental health cases today or relationship problems today, right. um, to, to really give them a, a strong voice. Uh, Nella Larson, quick saying. Uh, I'm gonna jump in with Zora. We gotta, I, gotta go I knew you was gonna get to it, let's jump into Zora. Hit, hit Zora real quick. Zora was unique because she loved the South. Most of these people couldn't wait to get out of this. Yeah. She loved the South. Um, she came from uh, 
a suburb in, in Orlando, Eatonville. All black town. All black town. The first in the country. Yeah. You know, and she loved it because it was a, the, the only place that she ever felt that she wasn't treated differently and she did not feel inferior. Um, so she, she loved being, she loved being amongst black people um, because it, it allowed her to be herself. Um, and it allowed her to not feel inferior. She sometimes felt inferior being around white people or they made her feel inferior. Um, she also was a really good friend of you. Yes, she was. And uh, they collaborated on a play together. Um, and she received a lot of recognition for a novel because of the play that she did with Langston Hughes. And she also began early on her investigations into voodoo culture, Yes, which we talked about. We think that one of the reasons why you don't hear her name as much as you probably should is because of her take on voodoo culture and her talking and writing more about voodoo culture. Um, she, this is also important too. She also wrote a, a book called The Last Congo, so the, the Last Black Congo. And it was a story about Cujo Lewis. And for those that don't know, Cujo Lewis is believed to be the last survivor of the final slave ship that brought Africans to America. So she wrote a story called Black Cargo, which talks about exclusively about Cujo Lewis. So Zora Hurston was huge, not just in the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. But in black writing in general. So when, whenever you read any type of literature from the the early 19th century, uh, 20th century, you're probably reading something that was either influenced by Zora or influenced by Langston Hughes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I texted you and I asked you um, about reading some some black authors and. You was like, you need something from a woman's perspective. Absolutely. And, and you told me to read. Their eyes was watching God. Yes. And, and I was reading it. And I said, dang it, this is hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was hard to read because she wrote exactly how she saw it. That's right. And like you talked about the self, her, her um, research, she would go down south to these towns where black people were. And she would sit outside the store where they sat and told these folklore stories. That's right. And she would write it exactly how they told it. And the jargon and everything, like the the slang, all of those words. But when you read her, it's hard to read the the, the quotations. It's hard to read the, the words that she are making other people say. But right after she does that, she has a way to put it into an intellectual way so that black people can understand it. And white authors said there is absolutely no way white people could wrote the stories that she wrote. Her stories were specifically had to be wrote by a black person that understood black people. And because her perspective of what we call today slick talk, she would put that in there, uh, flirting words, uh, slang. She, She would be able to put those into her novels and be able to use explain it by using context clues on what it is that they were talking about. Um, and she was just a natural storyteller. They said whatever she would show up, she would just tell stories. Because in her childhood, she would just read stories about uh, the alligator that crossed the, the river, those things. And she would tell those stories out loud. And um, she, she was just huge. But there's a few quotes I want to read from her and since we brought her up. Um, she says, if you're a silent about your pain, They'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. 
Uh, and her book, Dust Tracks on the Road, she says, I am not tragically colored. There's no great sorrow dammed up in my soul, nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. I do not belong to the sobbing school of Negrohood who hold that nature somehow has given them a low-down, dirty deal and whose feelings all hurt about it. Even in the helter-skelter skirmish that is my life, I have seen that the world is, is too the strong regardless of a little pigmentation, more or less. No, I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife. And I believe that's what this podcast is. That's right. Uh... Yes, we're talking about history or where black people were done wrong, systematically done wrong. But we're not using that as an excuse to not sharpen our own knife to go get what is ours. Um, so nobody's going to feel sorry for us. It's, it's, it's on us to work twice as hard if we have to, which we know that we have to, to, to make way and pave way for everybody else. Um, and I thought that quote was, was huge by her. Um, I'm going to talk about, let's see. James Van Der Zee, uh, acting as the unofficial photographer of, of the era of what we call the Hall of Renaissance, which he would just go by taking, taking pictures of middle-class African-American families living in Harlem, um, civilians, even capture pictures of people like Marcus Garvey, uh, Bill Bojangles, Robinson, um, uh, different writers. Um, but he not only documented the Harlem Renaissance, he also helped create it. Um, and I wanted to choose him for a reason because uh, my wife takes pictures. I've taken pictures uh, with her sometimes. Uh, everybody owns a, a phone where they have they can capture pictures. But photography is so important that people don't stop to understand how important it is. And what James did was he didn't understand what he was doing. But he was capturing history as it was happening. And and without somebody like him, we don't have those moments where we can go back and look at and, and really enjoy the past from a, from the future perspective. Um, and it all took for him just saying, hold on one second, say cheese, hold on one second, pause for a moment, let me capture this. Um, capture it in real time to give us just doing the future of what we're doing with history, especially with this podcast. This is why we record it visually um, because we are, we're, we're capturing history in the making. We may not even know what we're doing, but you know, our, our, our family get a chance to go back and look at this on video or through photos. And that's what he uniquely did. When you talk about the hall of Renaissance, you can go to Google and type in hall of Renaissance and pictures are going to come up of sophisticated black people walking around Harlem because of him. He That's didn't right. know what he was doing at the time. That's right. I had Aaron Douglas, but I see you got him too. You can sum that up better than me, so I'm going to choose uh, Metal Work Work Fuller. I was just going to say Better Work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was a female sculptor. Um, her sculpture, Ethiopia, in 1921 was inspired by the period of uh, pharaohs in ancient Egypt and is widely considered the first pan-African-American work of art. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something that we 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 did not talk a lot about is the sculpting. The sculpting. Yeah, that was huge during the Harlem Renaissance. Yes. Um, that was because that was a, a, a lost art for many years. Mm -hmm. And so to have that resurface 
um, and be reestablished on the Hall of Renaissance was huge. So I'm glad you mentioned it. She was she was also the protege of Augusta Rodin in Paris. Mm-hmm. And there, there was another sculptor guy by the name of uh, Richmond Barth. Um, but what when we look at sculpting, why is it so important? When you think of a sculpture, you think of a monument. You think mm-hmm. of something that's going to outlast a generation or outlast somebody's lifetime. Mm-hmm. So when you sculpture somebody, especially a real person, you're putting them on a pedestal to say this person needs to remember even after his lifetime. Right. And one of the sculptors that I, I looked up that created the the black image of power. When you look at it, their their shoulders are not slumped over there. They're rotted back. They're, right. they're put into perspective that sometimes a picture can't do its justice because it's hard to capture a picture and have the person looking right. So a sculptor or a painting would have somebody like a Booker T. Washington, if you look at his sculptures, look like a powerful human being to where you say, I want to know what this person did. That's right. um, and, that's, and, and that's the... That's, that's where you get monuments from. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you don't typically have a monument of a picture right. uh, or even a painting. Monuments are usually sculptures. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back because there's something Shaquan said I want to jump into. Alright, and we're back and we're going to jump right back in. But uh, you mentioned the person that I want to talk about. I didn't want to dive into it too much because I wanted Dad to because he told me a story a couple of week, weeks ago. I kind of want him to dive into a little bit on the podcast. Um, but Aaron Douglas um, helped cultivate the concept of New Negro through his illustrations. But what he would do was he would paint murals on side of buildings. That's right. Um, and and, and places, uh, those painted murals. And we're starting to see them today, a lot of in gentrified areas where they try to keep the urbanness of it by painting murals on the side of these uh, these buildings. Um, But that led into what we call graffiti. And I want Dad to, to touch on that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. He was the first one to, to take a wall and make it a canvas. I mean, when I was when I was a kid, I would look at the wall and go, that is a nice piece of canvas. You know, and I would draw the wall. You know, of course, that was like, you only did it once. But obviously, in, in, in New York, um, you start seeing canvases become almost anything that was white and clear. Um, subway trains, huge. And what some people looked at graffiti as being junk, garbage, messing up, you know, somebody's property, we looked at it as art. And it was amazing. And we would do anything we could to either be able to tag it or see it. Yeah. I mean, people would line up to, to try, try to catch some of these trains, trains especially the ones that would come from underneath the ground and be above ground, where you could actually see it above ground, that became like watching the sunrise. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got to see that train when they had that first tag before somebody screwed it up and spit, put spit on it or whatever, um, that was amazing because to us, that was art. And, um, you know, obviously the initial start of that started with the Renaissance. Right. And we're starting to see it now, especially to pay tribute with the murals of Nipsey Hussle, Kobe Bryant, George um, Floyd. Yeah, we're starting to see the murals uh, really come back. And again, with gentrification, we're starting to see uh, white America really try to keep that urbanized look by allowing murals on the side of their buildings. There's actually one in Lynchburg. Um, I think it's like a donut place where they got a mural on the side. That's right. Of, uh, That's right. I remember when I first first came here. Actually, it was the summer that I was here, I believe. 
Pettis, there was a teacher at the Bedford Elementary School at the time um, on uh, Long on the Corner of Longwood. And uh, it was the, um, if you go down the stairs in the, in the red building, going to go out the door to go to the cafeteria, people my age and a little bit younger probably remember like a castle and some knightsmen being drawn on the wall and all that. I did that. They came to me and was like, you like to do graffiti, we want you to paint on the wall. Really? And I'm not even going to trouble. So I got to paint on the wall of Beverly Elementary School, and it lasted for, for several years, you know, so obviously painting on the wall was something we originated, and it, it lasted, actually, you got billboards from there, that was the first uh, creation of billboards as we know it today, came from that era of the Renaissance, and real quick, I want to mention um, Frank Horn, a lot of people know his um, his niece, Lena Horn. Mm -hmm. But Frank Horn was unique because you mentioned something a minute ago about uh, everybody wants to proclaim their blackness. Sometimes it's just inconvenient to do so. Um, in the past podcast, you guys heard me mention a uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was very influential in not only women's rights, but also in the civil rights movement. And she was the wife of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, Frank Horn worked in the Black Cabinet uh, as Assistant Director of Division of Negro Affairs, National Youth Administration, and he helped develop the Home Finance Agency and National Committee Against Discrimination in Housing. So some of the housing opportunities that came about in Harlem was due to this guy working for the president during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and in 1960, um, he actually wrote a, a poem called Harvest Straw. And I, I, I like for people to Google and go read that. It's, it's pretty awesome. And you have a black guy who works with white America in the government system, and he's not shameful about being black and being proud of his heritage and willing to fight for his people. Starting with housing, which is something that we still struggle with even today. So you had a guy during the Renaissance and way after the Renaissance that was working hand-in-hand -hand with white America and telling them, you're wrong, and I'm going to fight you. We can go eat lunch. We can eat lunch all day long, but at the end of the day, I want you to do something to help these people, help my people. Yeah. Um, he had a, he had a, a nonfiction book called The Black Births. He also had one called The Negro Race, but one that I advise people, you ever have an opportunity to read, it's called Concerning White People. And it's really good. So it's nonfiction. Um, check it out. You know, check check some of these things out that we're we're asking yeah. you guys to read because we don't want you to take our word for it. You no. know, if you listen to the podcast, we're not on here to be right. We just strike interest, yeah. conversation, discussion, and we hope you do your due diligence by going out and doing your own research. Absolutely. Uh, I'm gonna go with Alice Dunbar Nelson real quick. Give us each day. And she says, in every race, in every nation, in every clime, in every period of history, there is always an eager-eyed group of youthful patriots who seriously set themselves to do the, to right the wrongs done to their race or nation, art or self-expression. I believe we see that today still with the younger generation still talking about history because we're, we're righting the wrongs of things that was done to our ancestors. And like... Uh, the shirt says, uh, we are not our ancestors. You can catch these hands. That's right. <laughs> That's right. uh, 
Claw McKay sonnet, uh, If We Must Die. Uh, Claw McKay is, uh, is, is important because he was Jamaican. And when he came to the States, he got a culture shock. He, he, he really didn't know that all this stuff was still happening in the States. He's like, wait a minute, slavery over. <laughs> what these people still treating y'all like this for? So um, he became real big into political resistance. And he wrote in uh, If We Must Die, If We Must Die, let it not be like hogs. Hunted and pen in an inglorious spot. While around us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our cursed lot. So he was telling people that, you know, if oppressed people to resist the oppressors. We're not, we're not gonna live on our knees. If we if we die, we're gonna die in the struggle. We're gonna die fighting back. And um those were some type of things that were put into literature to again, yeah, writers that'll make you laugh. Writers that'll make you cry, writers that'll bring you consciously aware, politically aware, socially aware of what was going on. So you had a lot of different groups of, of, of writers that were doing important things. And that's what's great about Langston, because Langston did all of them. Yeah, he did all of them. Um, yeah, people like Duke Ellington and Pearl Mail. Yeah. And also, um, we talked about this on a previous episode when we talked about sports with Negro League baseball announcers and writers came right out of the Hall of Renaissance. That's right. When you think of people like Stuart Scott, Stephen A. Smith, the things that they say, the slang words that they use, and they got this from, from Negro League Baseball, and this came right out of the Hall of Renaissance by using that, that slang and genre that necessarily wasn't correct grammar, but you say it, and, and you create what we look at commentary today. That's when you hear it, bang, when, you, right. when it doesn't play, hit a three-pointer, that bang, it, it hits you because that comes right out of uh, that spoken word in poetry. Uh, uh, about Mark Jackson, hand down man. Yeah, that's, that's, oh, mama, that goes that man. Right. I want to mention uh, real quick to Gwendolyn Bennett, and I want to mention her for a couple of reasons. One, you mentioned the magazine Fight. Yeah. Um, but also, um, she was one of the first black writers to write about interracial relationships. Um, she had a short story called Wedding Day, and uh, she where she actually talks about uh, gender, race, and um, what they call class dynamics and interracial relationships. So um, I, I think that was, especially nowadays, where um, some generations don't see race, um, but they, just because you don't see it in your relationship don't mean that others don't see it. And the trials and tribulations that interracial relationships go through from both sides. Um, and we're not just talking about how white America, white America doesn't necessarily accept that. There's times where black America doesn't accept it either. Yeah. Um, closing remarks. You know, when we talk, we, we did this episode to, to let you see how self-expression today, uh, where it comes from. Um, when you talk about Things that I do, uh, motivational speaking, uh, activism, um, you know, whenever you hear when when somebody is killed unjustly, you see these great soliloquies given out about racial injustice, their poems, their spoken words. This comes right out of the Hall of Renaissance of self-expression uh, through music. When we look, when we talked about last week, the music that came out of soul music, uh, race records, um, Things where they begin to talk about racial discrimination, songs like "What's Going On," right. songs like um, uh, "Like with Sam Cooke," um, "A Change Is Gonna Come," um, "Donny Hathaway," "Someday We'll All Be Free." All of these, all of these are poetically spoken. And when you look at uh, music, uh, rappers today, when you think of people like Most Def, 
um, Talakwali, Ali, um, Common, Com- Com- KRS One, Rock Him, Public Enemy. You know, when you think about uh, J- when you talk, especially Nas, when you think about right. these poetic rappers that that talk about their self expression, uh, they can make you laugh, they can make you cry, they can make you think. Uh, this comes right out of the the Harlem Renaissance of of, of that that expounded. Um, so when we think about the Harlem Renaissance. There's no time period where it started. There's no time period where it actually ended because it was still going on today. It's just not called the Harlem Renaissance. It's just right. the, the the rebirth of black people, whether that's uh, religiously, uh, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or um, you practice African spirituality, uh, black Hebrew Israelite, five percent or whatever the case may be. Um, you're 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 opening up your mind to different concepts from what you were taught. Absolutely. Because you're not going to learn a lot of this stuff in your own household. You're going to grow up one way. You're going to stick with that. Um, but you're starting to see these expressions through music. Uh, I know a lot of people hate bringing up council culture, but these are just people who are going back researching things and say, wait a minute, why are we celebrating this? Um, not only that, but going back and looking at things were done wrong and, you know, bringing it down to the present saying, yo, I don't care what how long ago it was, this was wrong. Right, absolutely. So you're, you're, you're seeing uh, Black people become consciously aware. Um, and they said the biggest threat to uh, America is Black people unifying and Black people becoming intellectually um, active for themselves, thinking like a Black man, thinking like a Black woman. Absolutely. When I think of the Renaissance, that's exactly what I think about is the unity then the awareness. Yeah. Um, because without awareness, without the unity, you don't get the education. Yeah. Okay. You don't get the hope. Um, and obviously with the Renaissance, it's something that unique take on that is, is that as a, as a kid, um, you always want to know where you got certain things from certain features. You see people, oh yeah, he looks just like his dad or he looks just like his mom. Features. Where you, as, as Eddie Griffin say, where you get your shit from? You know, you wanna, everybody wants to know where they get their looks from, where I get my walk from, where I get my talk from, where I get my, my swag from. Everybody wants to know that. Well, for Black America, you get your, the Renaissance shows you where you get that from. So when you look at fashion, when you listen to music, when you listen to jazz, um, when you listen to the different types of jazz, when you see uh, or, or hear the different dialects, the different slang, um, the different styles, the way you wear your hat, um, the way you tie your shoes. I think it's a unique thing. I watched you lace um, JC on shoes one day and how you make the strings go the same way I make my strings go. Well, a lot of our strings go the way that they went doing the Harlem Renaissance because they have made us aware of where we came from. They made us aware of our culture. They educated us. They empowered us. They gave us that value that we were looking for as black people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'll just uh, close with this. You know, it, it it gave opportunities for people like us uh, That's right. to, number one, do this podcast and be able to speak the way that we speak and talk the way that we talk, uh, to have our own media outlet platform without sounding like the normal CNN, normal uh, MSN, MSNBC, those type of things. Um, me as an author, not being a writer, knowing all of, going not getting a degree in English and all this right, other stuff right. that allowed me the opportunity to write a book based off the way that I seen things, based off the way that I talk, the way that I understand things. And as a motivational speaker, 
allows me, I don't have to say on like Les Brown and talk mm-hmm. all proper. I could go out there, I can start with AEO, and I can right. talk the way that I talk, and that comes right out of um, Harlem Renaissance. And for, for me, you know, uh, dad is into art, you know, he, he's into Photoshop, which in turn made me into art. 